Dr. Coons, this, this week's opening question is a little bit different. It is not as non sequitur, although it might be for you. It comes from something you said a couple episodes ago that I found really mm, pondersome in, in the sense, a good sense, that I pondered it a great yeah. deal. You said symbols can only take you so far. And yeah. I want to ask you now, why can symbols only take you so far? Because symbols are a way of trying to capture something that is necessarily bigger or deeper or let's say just broadly unknown in some sense, both to the person who is being, you know, symbolized to and to the person who's making the symbol. And that doesn't mean that language is meaningless or that language has language or art or maybe least symbolic and in some ways deepest um, artistic medium music has no relationship to the thing that it's talking about. But it does mean that primacy goes to life in all of its being bigger than and deeper than the symbols that we're able to put forth about it over mere words. And that's something that is philosophically debated throughout the ages. It's something on which Jesus pronounces, I think, pretty definitively in the Sermon on the Mount, that that deeds or actualities, realities go beyond merely what someone says when someone says, you know, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. But that this doesn't mean that we're totally in doubt about what a symbol is, but we have to concede that our symbols do not capture everything that we're trying to say. So if I say, if I say Jonathan, you know, there are lots of things I could talk to you about you or talk to somebody else about you. I could talk about your books. I could talk about this, uh, you know, the work that you do, I could talk about your family, but that's not going to capture everything about your life. And I think even if you were to talk about yourself and say, this is who Jonathan is or what Jonathan has gone through, that also could not quite be captured. And, and that's okay. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a mark against language or, or the construction of symbols in any way. I think it's just an acceptance of their limitation. There you go. So what you're really getting at is the limitation yeah. of symbols, specifically man-made symbols as being limited to the man who made them. Yeah. Except wherein we do see there is a harmonizing or a an archetype, archetypizing of mm -hmm. symbols that uh, yeah. relate. But we would, I think, as Christians say, these tend to be things that are revealed by God and then are reflected in nature. But even even then, so a man's a man, all he has is his symbols, his interpretation, his understanding of things. And so it's not as though we want to dismiss that. It's part of what life is. Right. And yet it's insufficient by itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that this pertains to a lot of things, but just to just to take one specific instance, right? Because symbol is a word that's used in church history to talk about what we would now call a creed or a confession. And the point there is not that the person who's you know, authoring the Nicene Creed or, or the formula of Concord is claiming to have exhaustive knowledge of the divine. But what he is saying is that on the basis of what the divine has revealed about himself, we can say this with certainty. And that's not a claim of arrogance, that's a claim of clarity, right? So we have to be able to tell the difference between clarity, which is possible, 
an arrogance, which is reprehensible. And I think that in trying to debunk certain historic forms of arrogance, our culture generally makes uh, an opposite error from arrogance. It's arrogant in its own way, but it makes the error of thinking that clarity is therefore impossible. And that, that lie is at the heart of a lot of the confusion. I'm not just saying that like the regime puts out or, you know, we'll be talking about education again in the next several episodes, different facets of it. But it's a lie that I think infests people's souls in a very profound way that clarity is impossible. You know, they talk about, they talk sort of semi-ironically, but revealingly about their lives or their personalities as a hot mess. Hmm. And that's, that's, there's something about that that is actually deeply unhelpful and, and self-absolving in a way that is not responsible it's helpful to have more words and to have deeper wisdom about things, not just so that I can construct symbols more effectively, which is what people like you and I do professionally. I'm always thinking about how to communicate more clearly than I do, but it's helpful for any human being to be able to say clearly, what is the matter with him? What is going on with him? And when we retreat into forms of socially approved obscurity, like gender queer, right? Not actually even allowed to say words like mother or father and to explain how, especially the absence of the father is the, the grave problem in that person's life. When I can't use the right words, that is, does not mean that I'm humble and I just accept people for who they are. That means that I'm actually unable not just unwilling, but unable to be clear about what is going on in my life. And that is horribly destructive for souls because you will go on feeling or thinking the way you do, even if you don't have words for it. Yeah. Confusing humility with ignorance is right. is not a good idea, but it is what is happening is how right. the simple-minded are, are led astray. So it sounds like a description of postmodern language theory there. Clarity is impossible and that you've pointed out that it, it hits the root of the American soul, the Western soul. We say it all the time. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which means yeah. there's no such thing as beautiful. If you really take right. that by itself, it's quite a profound <laughs> statement. So I don't know if I've got a great segue uh, from there into schooling yeah. and education again, other than this, that the postmodern mind seems to me to be an extension of the modern experiment, which is itself something of a mistake, and that the collapse of the school systems are a, uh, what an, e an ecology where I think we can study that hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah, and I a place that we that we ended with the last episode is maybe a good place to to start, which is the idea that, that what we have is a system that has a public school system in which still the vast majority of American children spend most of their childhood. We have a system that was constructed for one purpose with a relatively rigorous though limited curriculum now being used very clearly generally for specific political purposes, but without nearly the amount of intellectual content that used to be provided. And the difficulty that I, that I have there is not so much that I think, oh man, should I put my kids in that system? I kind of know very definitely I don't want to, but that out of, I don't know, love for mankind, it's sad to see people 
not provided with the capacity to express themselves well or to think deeply or clearly about anything. Because like I said, in the case, in kind of a broader case, but let's say specifically in the case of education, let's say that I have, I have a deep and abiding problem in my life that, that really isn't, isn't mine. It's, it's not of my willing. It's, it's not of my doing, but it's in my life, right? Let's say it has to do with my, my parents despise each other and, you know, they got divorced when I was four. Okay. This is right. Like a pretty common problem. So I go into the public education system and I'm never told that I have a soul, for instance, right? I'm never told that I have anything about me that is divinely given, right? So there's nothing that's, there's nothing in or about my life that necessarily needs to take priority over anything else. I'm a native English speaker, as the vast majority of American children are. But in my English class, which is called language arts, because you wouldn't want anything as specific or, or Eurocentric as English, right? So it's language arts. And what I'm mainly going to learn about, even in language arts, is like in seventh grade, maybe I have an entire year on sort of like the Holocaust and, and reading Anne Frank and stuff like that. So my issue here is that I don't know anything about myself. I don't know anything about, I actually don't know hardly anything about the language that I've been given to speak. I don't know how to express myself about myself. I know that certain things happened in history kind of far away from me. They do have to do with how I'm going to structure thinking about the world. That is that there are classes of people that are evil and there are classes of people that are good. That doesn't give me a whole lot of insight about my own life because I, I don't know that I have a soul. And then also I don't know, I don't know how to explain that sometimes I'm good and sometimes I'm evil. So the problem here is that we have an entire system in which the vast majority of our children are trained that really explains very little to themselves about themselves or their families or the life that they lead. So our concern both over the past several weeks and also over the next several weeks, the reason that we're doing all of this and the reason that we're looking at private schooling today is, is not just because it's interesting, which it is fascinating. And there's lots that we didn't have time and won't have time to say, I would think if you're listening to a podcast, go from a podcast into a book um, and then you'll get more, you can get more depth than you can listening. But it's mainly because the notion of whether or not a given human being is going to have the capacity to express himself or to be clear or to be thoughtful does rely a lot, not just on his education broadly, but on his schooling narrowly. And if that schooling is poor or strange or self-alienating, then you're going to wind up with people whose, we know they have them, souls are very warped and sort of underdeveloped in the same way that if a kid didn't really ever, he was never asked to run in school and he wasn't allowed to run at home. That doesn't mean that he can't run. It's that he has no idea how to run, okay? Because he was never allowed to and he was never instructed how to run. So it's gonna be ungainly and weird for him and he's not even gonna to think to do it. And I think things like souls or the cultivation of beauty or succinctness in one's own language, these are all things that are there and could be developed to one degree or another in anybody. They're simply not by our school system. So based on that, it sounds like modern education is effectively a series of 
institutionalized missed opportunities for learning yeah and and that is doing then the opposite of really what it ought to do by right. limiting the horizons of those who are schooled within it now the bigger right. question is whether this is yeah. intentional or not in my mind i mean i think for some this might be well, uh, this is accidental we didn't mean yeah. all these theories they went wrong oh we should yeah. we should think of i'm more in the realm of like i think the great schoolmaster is still the television in, the, in this thing yeah and even the taking over of the classroom by big tech by free give outs and handouts and all this kind of stuff i don't think it's accidental either but right. maybe that's too hydra-headed for us to dig to at today yeah i i think i mean i think briefly one thing to say is that if it's not intentionally malicious, it is maliciously negligent because something you recognize if you look at the history of, of pedagogy, really just in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, is that a lot of different, what, we, what we're not really talking about because we're talking more institutionally and practically, but things that we could talk about, and I'm happy to if the listeners are interested, whether on Discord or future episodes, is sort of theories of education, theories of how to go about schooling children, they usually will come out of some sort of recognized inadequacy, such that if you go and you, and, you know, he can sound like sort of a boogeyman in some of the ways that we've talked about him, and in some ways he was. But if you look at, if you actually read John Dewey, or you read uh, Maria Montessori, who started out working with developmentally challenged children in Italy, what they're always going to recognize is that the tendency within any kind of institution is to conform the person to the institution and there the reasons that that happens and and in the re, and the reasons that it continues are because it's it's largely beneficial it's especially beneficial for being conformed to some group you're actually going to have to be in later on like the US Marine Corps or the clergy of a certain church body in a seminary the problems are though that the institution will then neglect the individual for the sake of the institution. And usually a fresh educational insight will come out of trying to readjust institutions, whether it's just a single school or an entire group of schools or an entire system in order to better serve the individual. The thing that we see, I think, in our modern public school system is that it's hardly at all readjusting. And the ways in which it is readjusting are ways that probably originated in or are far more widely available, though at a much greater cost, within some form of private school. So in the United States, one of the main distinctions between public school and private school is that a private school will give you a much greater variety of approaches to education. Some of them are devoted to one specific approach that's going to look different, but Montessori, Waldorf, Sudbury, it's going to give you a lot, a much greater variety of approaches to, okay, what are we actually looking for in a child? What are we trying to develop? Whereas in, let's say, normal public school, what is available to you if you aren't in some very large and or very wealthy school district is going to be fairly standard and, and feels a lot and feels a lot for the vast majority of children, like a holding tank. It's a lot the of exception. Disney movies. It's the recent Disney movie on Thursday afternoon, squished between P.E. lunch, some yeah. other guy, and some math you have to learn, but the teacher doesn't care about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, yeah. it's rough. No, that's, no, that's true. That's true. And the, the exception that I personally had, which I think is, was sort of formative in my life where I got extremely advanced literature and language instruction, as well as advanced mathematics for a very small public school, 
were basically because they began to treat me, which is unusual for, right? So IQ testing pioneered at Teachers College, Columbia University, eventually began to sort for all public school systems, children along the bell curve, which is now sort of forbidden knowledge because mm-hmm. IQ varies predictably by race. But back when that was okay to still know that, you have you know the middle distribution and the school system is aimed to serve the middle distribution. And this is gonna be true for private schools too. And then on sort of the left side of the bell curve, you have developmentally disabled children. On the right side, you have what are called gifted children. Both gifted and developmentally disabled are so-called special education, actually. It's just mm-hmm. that usually we think of that with developmentally disabled children. You get this individualized education plan. Fortunately, they actually sort of heated that for me when I was in high school, and I got you know multiple foreign languages simultaneously. Wow. Um, literature classes that were the equivalent really of stuff that I did in my freshman year of college. It's so, so fascinating. Can I just throw in there? So so my yeah. memory of like junior and senior year is that me and the same 30 kids who were the gifted California version uh, kids yeah. in my class of a couple hundred, uh, we were bored to tears uh, trying to work through whatever those poor teachers were trying to give us. Yeah. And I mean, none of us were really particularly good kids in the sense of not snotty. I mean, we were all kind of yeah. the 90s era jerks, but we were we were smart kids. And yeah, we goofed off constantly. Why? Because <laughs> nobody was aware of what we were capable of, probably. Right. Right. Yeah. And the advantage that I had was that I was either on my own or with kids in grades older than me. So I was in that class setting functionally on my own. And that's basically just because of class size, because it was such a small place. So I think that something you can kind of see, and I think about this, not just for kids on either side of the bell curve, but kind of in the middle, which is the vast majority of human beings of any population anywhere in the world, is that if the system is not able to serve them, it's basically failing. Right. Because one of the things you can see is that develop, developmentally disabled kids are going to be trained, and this is, this is kind of the Montessori breakthrough, original breakthrough, is they can be trained to a higher standard of functioning and life than a lot of people give them credit for. And you have to be creative about how you do that. On the right side of the bell curve, the insight is that certain methods that especially work well in homeschooling which is what I was essentially getting by having this completely individualized, you can do and take whatever you want, we'll make it work. Right. System, those kids are probably going to do fine anyway. <laughs> as long you as they to... socially and spiritually develop, yes. I would say. But yeah. you're right. I mean, yeah, no, just academically, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll kind of see their way through. They're going to, I mean, one way that I saw it expressed is they're, they're going to learn in spite of the efforts of their teachers. Yeah, Holden Caulfield. <laughs> Holden Caulfield but... come to mind. Is that the right name? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a classic disgruntled, uh, gifted kid. But, the, you know, the system, the school, whatever level of actual organization and institution you have should serve the middle. And I don't think our current school system is doing that. That is our public school system. I do think that there are private schools that do that notably well. And, and that's why we're talking about them today, because if you look at, say, 70% of American kids, maybe 75, maybe 80, depending on, are in some kind of public school system, the vast majority of them being familiar, normal, not a magnet school, not a charter school. Now, this, Another, one, this one lights on Friday night is what they're about. Yeah, they do. They do. There's a, there's a lot of athletics. There's a lot of social awkwardness, especially in high school. Another maybe 10 to 15, again, these surveys are, are dated at various times. 10 to 15% are going to be private schooled. So that's still generally 
it's hard to know in 2021 what's going on with homeschooling, but generally twice as many kids are in private school as are homeschooled. That's why we're doing it in the order that we are. Right on. So, I mean, we haven't really touched on this idea that, and I think we just a little bit last week, but that private school today is kind of what public school was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of things that are associated with private school, like religious instruction, prayer, sponsorship by, you know, non-public institutions, especially churches. These are all things that are normal in public schooling throughout much of American history. It's really since Abington v. Shemp forbids Bible reading in the early 1960s in public school that you get a very severe divorce between private school, as a lot of people think of it, which for most people even today really means parochial school. And for most people in kind of popular imagination means Catholic school. Mm. That you get a severe divorce between, you know, sort of the generic, generally Christian religious content in a private school versus a public school. So public school, I would say up until about the early 1960s in the United States is very non-denominationally, and this is going to vary from school to school, from district to district, really. But it's very non-denominationally Protestant Christian. The places where that's not true, where there is Bible reading without comment or no Bible reading are vanishingly rare, probably extremely affluent, almost undoubtedly. It's going to be like a, let's say, like a heavily Jewish public school in New York Hmm. or a heavily Catholic public school where such a thing exists, maybe in Los Angeles or something. But generally, public schooling means non-denominationally Christian, that is functionally sort of Protestant until about the 1960s. Because the Catholics are schooling themselves, right? The Catholics are largely schooling themselves. And that, that is something that's going to change over time. There have always been Catholics in American public schools. But there is a time up to about the 1970s where Catholics are somewhat cut off from the American public school system. But it is true that if you go far enough back, public school is going to look a lot like what you now think of as private school. And private school is going to be, you know, not all that distinct from public school, either in its funding sources or in its content. In your notes, you mentioned the word splintering into private independent parochial. That sounds like it's quick. Yeah. So what happens as public school systems, as we talked about with Horace Mann, school systems begin to arise, is that you get uh, a shattering of what was once kind of indistinct, right? So if there's a time when it's going to be really hard to tell the difference between private and public schools, there comes a time where after public schools begin to take over by virtue of being tax funded, people become, as public school systems spread, especially into places that didn't necessarily have them before, like Pennsylvania or Virginia, you get a splintering of efforts. There are going to be people who are going to say, no, I don't want non-denominationally, religiously non-specific, you know, Bible reading. So what happens at that point in about the middle of the 19th century is that you get a splintering into terms that are now going to be and I hope this is helpful to people, they're actually fairly distinct. So when we say private school, for most people, that covers everything from a Catholic school to, you know, a homeschool co-op. I think maybe. It, like you go to pay is, is not taxes and you pay for it. Yeah, you pay for it. And that, and that is the common denominator to all the things that we're talking about this week and next is that someone besides 
the government is paying for it. Okay. So I'm not really going to go into like vouchers and the history of vouchers and, and busing and stuff. It's very arcane. You can look into that yourself, but if you just think of it as will, is it going to be provided or will a, some private person or entity have to pay for it? The some private person or entity has to pay for it is what we're going to be talking about this week and next the splintering that's going to occur and it's going to happen at different rates in different states because American education really is a state story. So there are at least 50 different stories. If you think of DC, there are 51, you know, is that at whatever rate the religious demography of that state is going to provide or necessitate, you'll get a distinction between okay, I want some form of instruction that public school doesn't provide. And that's, that's I'm going to use the word private for that. So that's going to cover everything from military schools to Montessori schools, because the exceptions to that are going to be vanishingly rare. There are public Montessori schools here and there. There are even public military schools, like there's a, there's a high school in Chicago that's a military school that's public those are vanishingly rare. So if you want some form of instruction, some educational philosophy, some approach, doesn't have to do with religion, but it's some way of educating the young that public school generally is not gonna provide, that's gonna be a private school. Independent really is its own term and it, it, and it carries some of the connotations. It, it actually has what some people think of when they say, I went to private school. And what they really mean is some sort of dead poet society, Hollywood image of a New England boarding school. <laughs> schools that call themselves independent schools are descended from New England boarding schools in some way or another. Sometimes they just are New England boarding schools. What independent, independent is kind of like in American religion, the term non-denominational, where non-denominational actually just means Baptist, right? An independent school means that it runs on its own. It's not actually run by a church or affiliated with a church, but independent is almost always in the United States, at least historically Episcopalian. And this has to do with... That's with hilarious. Something. So it's so not independent. It's like so no. independent. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, every once in a while, the school will have been started by like a congregational minister or something, but it's, it, it's, it's very reliably Episcopalian in heritage, even on like the West Coast, where there are very few of them, right? It will be historically Episcopalian. And <laughs> there are reasons for that, but it's why... And, and this has to do with something, I don't know, maybe it could be an entire episode. I don't know how interested people are in this. There are certain institutions in, in the United States history that, that are sort of functionally Episcopalian, at least for parts of their history. One of those is boarding schools. Another would be the U.S. Navy chaplaincy. There, there are certain, and there's a guy that wrote a whole book about it called the, the Pow, Their Power and Their Glory, about the Episcopalians as America's ruling class. That's not hasn't been true for at least 60 years, but there was a time. Hey, this was my theory that the crown still runs the world. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I you know, uh, ex-Episcopalian, not former ex entering the chat here. You know, I, 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 I don't see it. I hey, don't see big it. Big Tony, big Tony doesn't want a big crowd around. That's all I'm saying. You know, <laughs> he's, he likes a, a rundown pizza shop with some bottles right. up front. That's all he wants. So, so, um, but, yeah. but yeah, but independent schools or things that sort of ape them, not in how, how the students live, but in sort of 
the uniforms, the chapel services, at this point, the curriculum are sometimes called country day schools. Right. Meaning, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you go to them and then you go home to your parents' home, but it sort of functions in much the same way. The architecture is going to be the same. Those, those independent schools are really a measure, not so much if I want a different approach necessarily, but of, I want a different set of people. And that's where I you can see that. a different tax, tax bracket. Right. And so private schools broadly can exist you know, you're, why why would people pay for something else other than what state church provides? Yeah, luxury. Well, it it could be because I want a different approach, and that's where you know, if you talk to somebody that sends their kid to a Waldorf school, they it's sort of like homeschooling. You kind of have to like read enough books to get into it, or be kind of off in a certain way from kind of the norm. I say that approvingly in this case. Yeah, amen. To get into it, <laughs> uh, independent schools are different. It could be family legacy. It could be aspiration. That is, I've made enough money. I want my kids to belong to a different social class than what I grew up in. It could also be connections. And that's where things like boarding schools, but also certain things that have academic prestige in the United States, certain colleges, certainly the Ivy League would be part of this, but Stanford and Duke are also now part of this. They don't really exist because if you go to, I don't know, the University of Illinois, like you're a complete idiot. They exist because if you go to the University of Illinois, you're not going to know the same people mm -hmm. that you'll know if you just get into Harvard. That's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. And so the point of, of independent schools is that they're, they are cultivating a certain class of people, which is something that you'll notice is that over time, they're going to get less and less ethnically specific. So the big, the big opening up of these schools in the 1940s and 50s is to Jews without a quota on how many Jews in each class. And at this point, it, it, they're really not terribly American, right? So the percentage of kids in the ninth grade at, say, St. Paul's School or Exeter it, or Kent is going to be a lot lower than it was in 1970. So those independent schools now exist, whether, I mean, the vast majority of them are in the Northeast, but they exist elsewhere. They're going to exist in order to perpetuate a certain social class, which is now very much international. Even if the kids are going to grow up and live in the United States, they're being sent there to be part of a ruling class, which is itself international. It's incredible because it is to do what you as a white person are, allowed, are not allowed to do, like technically. You're not allowed to think <laughs> this way. You're not allowed to act yeah. this way. It's wrong. Yeah. It's verboten. It's why you're white and evil. And don't do it, but they can't. Right. They have but money. if you if you if you are white and you're part of that you're part of that legacy, which what which will make admissions actually, especially if you're a white male. I mean, admissions to you know St. Paul's School, let alone Yale or Princeton, is going to be fairly difficult at this point. At this point, you, yeah. You play lacrosse, but if you are a legacy kid at at that kind of institution, it, the right it's going to be a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So that's independent, and we'll talk about some of the history of this as we go on. But we've got private, and I'm using that term just for different educational approaches. We've got independent, which is kind of like a boarding school or a country day school. And then we've got what is the vast majority of, quote, private, privately schooled children throughout most of American history, and that's parochial schools, meaning attached to a parish or uh, of some denomination or sponsored by some religious denomination. This used to be almost exclusively Catholics and Lutherans. Since about the 1960s or 70s, it includes 
large numbers, although not really organized into systems because of their church polity of people like Baptists, non-denominational churches, Pentecostals. Whereas in the past, those groups prior to the, the banning of public prayer and Bible reading in public schools would be staunch, regular, even not just attenders, but advocates of public education. Right, right. Yeah, they, they, they would run the system. They would run the prayer service. They would, the, uh, they the would. Baccalaureate. Right. And the growth of, with a variety of educational approaches, the growth of non-Lutheran Protestant schools is really an index of the alienation of kind of conservative Protestant Christians from American public life. Which makes a lot of sense. A question I have is, so is this since the 80s, you're saying? So so like the gross growth of non-Lutheran private schools since the 80s is on the upward swing, wherein it would seem to me, my read of the land, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. uh, the Lutheran school footprint has been receiving significantly, and it looks like it plans to do so for some time. So that's a, that's a fascinating opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what you have there are kind of two different dynamics for parochial schooling. One is a system which was once presumptive and comprehensive, that is Lutheran schools for Lutheran kids. And so you get a dynamic of a subculture entering the mainstream, both with going from German language into English language instruction, but also philosophically with the teachers moving from, and we'll talk about this probably in next week's episode, moving from a very specific, religiously specific and theologically informed philosophy into having more of a mainstream philosophy, which makes it a lot easier for them to opt out of that system if they want to into public school. So in the case of Lutheran schools, you're going from we're abnormal, but we all do it to we're normal and only some of us some of the time do it. <laughs> Whereas with lots of other, let's say, conservative Protestant Christians, you move from a 1940s America in which I send my kid to a local public school. I know who teaches there. I have a lot of control over who teaches there. Schools get consolidated. Rural schools are closed. I have less and less control over an ever-expanding school bureaucracy. And that school bureaucracy is becoming increasingly hostile to me, partly because, and we'll talk about this with the history of higher education, even the teachers' colleges, let alone the kind of flagship universities in a given state, are becoming more hostile to the average person in that state, even if it's, you know, Oklahoma or something. So now my kid can't pray. My kid can't read or hear the Bible in school. What do I do? And so the awareness of the need for specifically Christian education grows in a suddenly alienated group of people who are increasingly calling themselves after World War II evangelicals. Whereas in Lutherans and Catholics as well, it actually declines over the same time period as those kind of once obscure, generally ethnic, you know, immigrant groups become more, more normal. They say, well, why can't we send our kids to public school? It's not going to kill anybody. So is the Catholic footprint of schools today and is, is grand remaining size a matter yeah. of just how big they've always been? It is. Yeah. Yeah. They're not, they're not pioneering they look massive like they're expansion. Eating it up, though. They look like they're just eating it up. I know here they did, they closed a school on one side of the river, but the reason for that was so they could keep the other schools running pretty well. I mean, they, they're recognizing demographics. So I just, I see them as still gaming the game and yeah. I see the Protestants as entering the game with gusto. And I see a Lutheran school system that sounds a lot like how you described the public school, increasingly hostile 
to the actual Lutheran church, largely because of the teaching colleges that are training the teachers. And, yeah. you know, I hate to put it on the wall like that, but that's where it is. Yeah. So I want to I want to save Lutherans for the next episode, like <laughs> okay. in greater depth. Sure because it's its own history and because of our listener base, I want to give it its own episode, but I'll, I guess I'll say there's kind of like two things to say about that. One is Catholics are generally going to do things in a more financially savvy way because everything is organized in a much more centralized fashion, similar really only to public school systems. Whereas in the case of Lutherans, the highest level of organization that has any administrative bearing on any given school is going to be the district. And that really doesn't have control. So everything is local and that's good. If you want to keep your church open during coronavirus, that's bad. If you need people to make sort of like 50 year long type decisions, generally speaking, because they think and know only extremely locally. And sometimes that's not good for thinking long-term. Yeah. Yeah. They think, you know, maybe even annually as opposed right, to anything right, else. Right. Yeah. And so that, that makes it really hard to say, okay, in this region, here's where people are moving. Here are growth factors. Here are decline factors in say this metro area of 400,000 people. Let's make this decision. Even if, Catholics in are, my experience, even if we got to that point, yeah. is we don't have the chutzpah to make the decision. And that, that has to do with the hierarchy thing again, too, a little bit, though. It's, it's, it, I've, I've been in places, you've been in places, where the writing's on the wall on a number of different things, and it's yeah. just too hard of a decision to make. Too many people who are cared about in real life yeah. are going to have their lives hurt by this. Right. And there is no king to just put the sword down and say, well, we're going to go this way anyway. And and whether that has to be a king or a voice that just leads and we follow, that yeah. seems to be the, the, the thing that's missing and that Rome de facto has built into its idolatry, if I can say it that way. <laughs> yeah, Rome, Rome is organized for decision-making in much the same way that teachers' unions are organized for political advocacy and decision-making. And something you can see is that groups that either historically didn't have to make big financially costly decisions really generally, um, which would be like the Lutheran church above the congregational level are not, are not even organized for decision-making, let alone good at it. And so what happens is that you get sort of hazy stumbling, which is sort of natural to human groups without leadership, right. Of any size or kind that hazy stumbling just kicks decisions down down the pike and if you have a democratic polity that means that the people that you're electing uh, or that are appointed to kind of decision making responsibilities are there because they are and because they like to be and because and and so that they may continue to be popular which is not the same thing as actually being able to make decisions the the one exception in the case of a lot of protestant churches including Lutheran churches, is that the pastors actually have tenure, okay, which is different from a Catholic parish, but the parish priest isn't actually expected to make these kinds of decisions by himself. So the, let's say the, the, the strategic planning salvation of a lot of Protestant churches is that their ministers actually have tenure. And in the case of being able to see down the pike and say, okay, we need, we need to have a big school in this suburb of Nashville, or we need to have, we need to, you know, close this school and move this other school. The, the only saving grace administratively for a lot of religious institutions is that their ministers don't get moved around all the time and are hard to get rid of. <laughs> theoretically. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
uh, is the Missouri Synod. We'll, we'll save that for next time. Moving around yeah. all the time. That might be just my past. But I have a funny feeling Missouri's had us move just a bit more than we needed to for our long-term good. But pastor, the pastor having skin in the game yeah. is, is what you just said there. That's a pretty key right. reality. And that the more that it's seen, oh, the pastor's got skin in the game. I mean, he's thinking harder than we are. The better off the group can be. Um, and that's not the pastor being, say, shepherd or leader, tribal elder, whatever group you're talking about, superintendent, if it's your local Lutheran school. Yeah. Where are we on our list of, of moving forward? I, I kind of want to have you distinguish between Montessori and Waldorf in two sentences just for fun. Yeah. yeah. And and this this throws us back because it, it's really back to like differences in approach. But you will find Montessori schools every once in a while in a very large, usually well-funded public school system. Mostly you'll find them as standalone schools for which sociologically, generally a slightly to very left-wing parent constituency is willing to pay quite a bit in order to have an educational philosophy centered around the freedom of the child and the mm. development of the child along the lines of freedom, which was for Maria Montessori, who was first a pediatrician and, and after that an educator, very interestingly, was the basis of life, biologically speaking, not just uh, philosophically speaking. Hmm. Sounds Freudian to me. Keep going. Waldorf runs off the philosophy, the anthroposophy of... Rudolf Steiner, who had lots of... Can you spell anthroposophy for me? Here? Yeah, it's a, I mean, down. it's a German. It's it's anthropo. So it's mannish wisdom. Wisdom of man, yeah. Very, very strange ideas, very kind of uh, Germany pre-World War One. They kind of thought everything people could possibly think. They were... They, they were obsessive about that stuff they were well they i mean sort of still are if you want if you want an instance of a human thought look at the german speaking lands before world war one you'll find at least one instance of anything you're looking for basically it's all been done before okay okay so steiner has a very not exactly biologically based because he was sort of a mystic but a lot of it is expressed in biological terms so there are specific insights and requirements at a Waldorf school about movement, connection to nature. Some of it I personally find fascinating and attractive. That's probably because of the college I went to. I can't say that I agree with it. Fascinating is not agreed, but fascinating. It's one of those things that on the smorgasbord of, of learning seems to have a few potatoes I'd pick up and put on my plate. Same, same yeah, with Montessori yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, and there are examples of sort of Waldorf-like things being integrated into public education, especially in Germany and Scandinavia. I mean, in, in each case, there's going to be an insight. Totally. Like Dewey's, that something has been missing. Yes. The thing is, yes. then, do you institutionalize the thing right. that's missing as the only answer right. to all education, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's where I'd say that if you're doing schooling with merely a pedagogical approach or for some specific social benefit, whether it's to, quote, get a job or to belong to a specific social class, or you're organizing all your political thinking along, you know, IQ scores, right? Uh, which I know some people that do that. The problem there is that you're taking some specific insight about people and how they acquire wisdom, and then you're mapping it onto all of reality. And that that is arrogance in symbolism, because you're taking something that is specifically insightful about how humans develop biologically, that would be Montessori or Steiner about human children's need especially to learn much from nature 
And I think like one, one example of how that gets inculcated, and I'm sure somebody in like the Pacific Northwest is doing this in the US, but European schools, especially Northern European schools, in some places you can get what's called a forest school where the kids are outside like most of the time, Sounds <laughs> most awesome. of the day, especially in like kindergarten through third grade. I think that's pretty fantastic. It does sound good for yeah. boys, especially man. Yeah, for boys, especially. So that's something where, okay, the Waldorf school is going to do really great at that. Is a Waldorf school or a Montessori school going to do really great at understanding like the residents of evil inside the human heart? Hmm. Not so much because on, nothing on, is set right. up to handle that. Yeah. Right. right. So that's, that's the main difference between Montessori and Waldorf. There are tons of other approaches that you can find. I mentioned Sudbury, which is a sort of obsessive devotion to democratic decision-making. There are very few of those, mostly in New England and England. I would imagine that they don't have a lot of activity as they talk about what they're going to do next. <laughs> no, I don't, no, I don't think they do. And, <laughs> and it obviously works better with I high think schoolers. we can jump from evil in the human heart back yeah. to independent schools and yeah. they're distinguishing between the preservation of, I'm just reading from your notes, but it's great, yeah. preservation of classical education versus the preservation of regime elite systems. Yeah. So evil human hearts, those running the systems, uh, to see then in the big mix of all of this private schooling, the independent schools really do stand set apart as something of a, of a cultural roadblock. Mm, yeah. Kind of. And it is notable. I mean, we talked about compulsory public education um, <laughs> yeah. attempts in, in the last couple episodes, attempts at that were never made in the Northeast, even though the public or common school system originates in New England, as we know it. And the reason for that is that you have in the Northeast especially in New England, enduringly, these independent schools, most of which are boarding schools, some of which are, are day schools, but they inadvertently have preserved the last, the last remnants until its recent revival among conservative Christians of Latin and Greek as the basis for the curriculum, <laughs> as both form and content in their literary and historical traditions for what it means to be an educated person. In the United States, that was never the basis of public schooling, even though Latin used to be much more available, especially in American high schools. But it was never the basis of the common school system. Independent schools were sort of the remnant of that, where you can, you know, you can go to Phillips Exeter and you can take many years of Greek in, in high school. Until the advent of homeschooling, as well as classical Christian education in the last really 30 years, that didn't exist hardly at all. We'll talk about the Lutheran exception to that in the next episode, but that's actually been preserved by boarding schools. It's not requisite. And you can kind of see already the listeners are, I'm sure, familiar with the idea that classics majors at Princeton no longer have to learn Greek and Latin because that's, I don't know, whatever, euronormative. Maybe I'm inventing a word. Racist. There you go. But the fact that those older methods or older, that older content for a curriculum, especially for people that were going to be running our country, like it or not, that's incidental, I think, to the class system that is more importantly and continues to be preserved. It's not like those independent schools are becoming less expensive as they begin to drop these uh, you know, white supremacist uh, curricula. 
So it's what they teach is not nearly as important as who they teach. Right. Who they teach is not going to change as what they teach does change. Right. And then trickle down to what they tell you. You have to learn as well. Do you want to talk about the Quakers? We've got about 10 minutes left before this, this episode should wrap up and uh, what four bullet points there. So you tell me where you want to go. Yeah, I want to I want to bring Quakers in as a sort of litmus test here because they're a good study in how much a private school can change even as it institutionally endures and why private schools exist. So Quaker schools um, start late relative to other denominational schools, partly because Quakers are not sure that education should actually be done formally. That's a theological objection they have. And so they're kind of the original unschoolers, which I'll talk about when we talk about the history of homeschooling. Education is violence, right? Isn't that how it goes? Yeah, like education. Well, educate. the problem with education is that it could suppress the light, capital L. So the I light. I more it, of postmodern kind of feminist, you know, Marxist theory that to teach is to enact violence upon the oppressed. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting because there is a preponderance of Quakers in anything left wing in American history, wherever <laughs> the left wing is at any given time. <laughs> they are disproportionately represented. Well, they're they're shaken for a reason. Let's say that they are, and so the light. I mean, the the motto of my my mater. I'm not going to call her Alma. Of my mater is mind the light in English. We wouldn't use Latin because that would be wrong. Remind the listeners how smart you are again. Say that again. Where are you from? Swarthmore College. Yeah, no one's ever heard of that. Where's that? No one's ever heard of it's that. It's so smart. No one's heard of it. It's I mean outside. It. Yeah, the, it's outside Philadelphia, as Quakers do. Yeah. Who do you play basketball and, against? Uh, we played against Haverford, who are the wrong kind of Quakers. Okay, there you go. That yeah. didn't help anybody reference it at all. <laughs> yeah, good. So, uh, yeah, we were we were the really liberal Quakers. Haverford were the semi-respectable ones. Yeah. So. Well, I'll just say for the listeners out there in, in TV land that Swarthmore is like, uh, oh, I just, how can I forget where Harry Potter goes to school? It is like Hogwarts, only without the magic, right? But like, without the magic. Y- you only get in there are people secret letter and secret invitation connected yeah. to certain networks on the East Coast and you're in and you're in, really like you got to get beat up by some blonde kid and then they're going to laugh at you and then your uncle goes to jail. But at the end, you save the world and you end up as Adam Koontz and that's Swarthmore. <laughs> There are, there are, there are people wearing capes. They run around with with foam swords. Is that and, true? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. I I remember visiting. Uh, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose track where this is too. Okay, so we have a sister church body in England. The LCMS does, and that yeah. there is a is it Oxford? I think that there's a, Cambridge, a little school West Cambridge. House. Yeah, Westfield. Yeah. It's a little school attached. Yeah. To it. I remember being there and all the guys wearing the robes. They're all walking around in robes. I'm like, well, that's different. It's yeah. Totally... So that's, well, that's a very Anglican thing to do. And yeah. there is an Anglican, there's an Episcopalian school in the South, Sewanee, where they still do that. But that's not Swarthmore the robes you're talking very, about. Yeah. Swarthmore is very Quaker and part of the Quaker ethos is simplicity. So, so back to the um, swords. It's more, it's more the, North Face vests. The, no, the foam uh, swords and the, and the capes. How is this simplicity in Quaker? I'm well, the, those are, <laughs> that's a specific dorm. Um, the, the vibe, the vibe is more, the, the closest vibe for Quakers that I've ever found would be Pacific Northwest. So things that people associate with the Pacific Northwest seem to be very culturally Quaker. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like expensive, understated. Okay. But the point here then is that, so you went to Swarthmore and the history of that place as a place for education 
institutionally continues on but is not what it was formed for. It's the same well, regime that moves it, but new ideologies. Yeah, I mean, one of the commonalities that you can see, and I wasn't actually thinking of Swarthmore. I was thinking more of Quaker, uh, like Sidwell Friends School, which most Democrats, certainly the Obamas, send their kids to um, in D.C. with parallels in, in like New York and Boston and, and Philadelphia. Those is at those friend schools, but also Quaker colleges like Swarthmore have referred the comment They're they're formed for very American denominational reasons to begin with. Once Quakers come around to the idea that it's okay to formally school people and homeschooling is not actually necessitated by theology. Once they do that, they have these denominationally specific schools that then because they're denominationally specific socially, they change over time. So Swarthmore was basically a cow college. It was in the middle of a farmer's field when it was started. And then socially, it moves with the denomination so that it becomes like middle class, extremely waspy, has a great lacrosse team. But that denomination itself shifts over time. And so the school shifts in ideology from being sort of comfortable being in America to being hostile to America, that is left wing. And so you go from getting sort of nice waspy kids to having, you know, a leading role in left-wing American academia in the case of Swarthmore. But in the case of Quakers more broadly, they're going to be at the forefront of anything left-wing that you can think of. Not, not in enormous numbers, but disproportionate to their numbers, no question at all. Um, Quakers are a lot like American Jews in that way. And so once they are there, they're actually doing something that they were set up to do in the beginning, which is to be distinct. So I think something to notice about and with Quaker schools as a test case is that the institution can remain, but what is going to occur over time is that those institutions, which because they're old, have way more money than anything that you're going to set up in your little Lutheran church mm -hmm. and therefore way more power, yeah, never going way away. more power than a Catholic parochial school or a Lutheran parochial school because they, have, they just have so much money. I mean, they've been building endowments since before your ancestors got here. So they've, yeah, got, yeah, all, yeah. they've got all this money. What are they going to do with it? Because that's not taxed. You know, I mean, we should tax endowments. That would fix so many problems. Well, isn't that what they're trying to, I don't even know what they're yeah, trying but, to do. But, but yeah. because of that money, they are able to do whatever they want. And that really is, in the case of the boarding schools, that's the meaning of independent. But even in the case of vaguely denominationally related huh. Quaker schools or Episcopal schools, that that is the significance of their power. It's not that their ideology is consistent over time. It's that they are consistently going to be powerful because they've been around for so long. Yeah, they're, and, new, they're nobility. It's a new yeah, form of nobility. Exactly. And so when people are, it's sort of like when I, I, I really don't appreciate when people call like, left-wing people crazy or something. I mean, maybe they literally do have mental health problems. That's very probable. In Most fact. Americans do. Yeah, that's right. But, um, but it, it's a little, it's naive to dismiss people who went to quote a snooty private school, because the problem is that is still where our regime goes to school. They don't go they, they don't really go to parochial schools, even though we're going to do a whole hour on parochial schooling specifically. They, they're not homeschooled and they don't go to public school by and large. The public schools that they do go to are effectively private 
because you have to make enough money to own a residence in that district. So they either go to a public school that's effectively a private school, or they go to a private school, an independent school or a day school. And what's happening there is not that they're learning lots of Quaker theology or Episcopal, Episcopalian theology. It's that they're getting to know one another. And so I, in contrast to this story of integration and kind of common American understanding that was the aspiration of the public school system, the private school system, which has always been where our elites are educated, has never existed for those purposes and has never been forced to integrate into those purposes or into those systems. And it continues to go on today, I mean, in a way that is financially seemingly utterly secure. I like the word seemingly thrown in there. Uh, I mean, <laughs> well, that's that's with some sort of like vague, stupid, uh, but dubious hope that, you know, uh, college endowments would be taxed or something. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, and these are the groups that are going to be ready for Bitcoin and try to take it over as it comes and that kind of thing, too, because they're the ones paying the big hedge funds, right? Isn't right. uh I forget who ties to what, but Harvard's like the biggest one and it's run by the company that everybody wants and you can't, you gotta be a billionaire to have your money like in it and whatnot, blah, blah, blah. So all these right. big hedge yeah. funds are, are, a lot of it is uh, East Coast endowments for education and or Episcopalian churches too, right? It's mm-hmm. just... Yeah, yeah. And there is a, there is an, an easy symbiosis between private equity, whether hedge funds or other forms. And not only these schools sending their kids there, but also endowment management. So the people who run Yale's endowment are people who are or used to be or will one day be hedge fund managers in a slightly different office or family wealth managers in a slightly different office in a different, you know, New York suburb and, you know, a Connecticut suburb of New York City. So So you're dealing you're dealing with an environment which is self-reinforcing and extremely wealthy. It's not literally the same people who were in control of those schools or colleges in 1867, but they have the resources and the systems and the social and financial capital built up since 1867. So in this way, let me say that the American lie is less of a lie than we we maybe have led on to believe, because if it is just the nobility, at least in this nobility, you can be a merchant and climb in eventually. All you got to do is get your kid in the right school, right? And you can actually work your way in. Yeah. And I I, I think, yeah, that, and that, and that is very true that, and, and the point of these schools is not exactly the education, even though I will say this with credit to Swarthmore. I don't, I don't know Princeton. I don't know Dartmouth. I received an outstanding education, but that wasn't really the point of being there. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. And so if you end up in a, you know, largely Midwestern church body, it doesn't do me any good that I went there as it were. Right. Because the value of it is actually entrance into a certain class, yeah, a certain class, which our church body has uh, absolutely very little, which to we're know, not part con- of and, yeah, content with at all uh, contact right. with at all. So so with that being true, I mean, what do we do with this hour of information? What we do is we're sort of laying out in the in this in this week, an ecosystem, the part of which concerns the vast majority of us will go into much greater depth in next week's episode. We did this so that we understand where we're located. Because one of the things that I'm presuming if you listen to the show is that you understand that public education is inadequate to human souls. And so what's the alternative? Well, the alternative in America always means paying for it. 
I want people to understand where within paying for it, Lutheran schools, whether they're home schools or congregational schools exist, which is, it's a vanishingly small percentage. It's of almost no social significance, okay? And that's not to depress people to talk about New England boarding schools and colleges that cost an absurd amount. It's in order for us to understand what the stakes are and what the situation is. And that's fine, right? That's, that's totally fine. Because I think anxiety to enter, especially these old moneyed worlds, is precisely what sets people who really are not mainstream by virtue of their theology or their political ideology, it's what really causes them to compromise the most for the sake of access to these things that feel prestigious or good or old or big or rich or all of those things, right? And when you seek more to be in something, and that's why I've been stressing that it's really not about the education received there. It's about being in a group. When you are striving to be in a group that is that the rules of which are not set by you, whether it's public education, easy to get into that group, or these other forms of private education, much harder, you're going to dilute the group you're actually part of and the convictions you actually have so that you can get into this group that's not controlled by those convictions. So when you're talking about private school, some conviction is going to cause you to choose Montessori or choose Waldorf or choose Quaker or choose Lutheran you really have to think about, can I bear the cost of that? And what is the cost of that? And in laying out this ecosystem, I hope that I give you a better sense of where we're at, how much it costs, what we're up against. Not in order to depress. You're not going to bring down Sidwell Friends School or anything right away, but in order to you know, enlighten so that you understand like what we're actually up against. Yeah, you can't compete on their turf. No. And so you can wallow in the muck and whine and complain and get bitter, or you can pick some different turf, for pity's sakes. I like a little Sun Tzu here. Use the high terrain and fight downhill. It's a brief history of power with two white guys. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here.